I know that you can do anything, and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You ask, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said I will question you, and you will answer me. Well, I have heard of your hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I abhor myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. I've entitled this message this morning, Job's Repentance. And this time through, I have a completely different take on the book of Job. And always considering a book about suffering, which indeed it is, but the purpose and the reason for the suffering took on greater clarity for me personally this time through. If you go back to chapter 40, in verse 3, my Bible says this is Job's first answer to God. And as we look at chapter 42, in between these two chapters, Job's only going to speak in um, two verses here in chapter 40, 3 through 5. And uh, then the Lord is going to speak again in all of chapter 41. And um, um, then Job will speak the second time. And his uh, statements are extremely short. And uh, at this time, for the last time, we're going to put on the screen the overview of the book of Job. And I want to do... A very quick overview as we tie up the the book this morning. Um, This is where the Lord reveals himself to Job, and Job is really aware for the first time that the Lord's been observing this whole thing from the get-go. So as you look at the chart, we go back to chapter 1. It's the oldest book in the Bible, and um, it begins with, again, Job, Uh, talking about his wealth, his possession, his children. Things are going well. He has a great reputation. Um, He's honored. Uh, He's one of the mightiest men in the East, that's what we're told. That's the first six verses. And then it goes from the earthly to the heavenly, and we have the sons of God, the angels, coming to appear before the Father. And the Lord says, have you considered Job? Nobody like him prays for his kids every morning and He's an upright man. He hates evil. He does good. And um, the test now, the gauntlet's laid down as far as the enemy of our soul goes. And he says, well, take away all this stuff. Take away his possessions. Take away his children. You'll see what that guy's made out of. And so the Lord says, it's in your power to do so. And one day, Job lost everything. Seven sons, three daughters, all of his wealth, all of his possessions. And... Um, His attitude was, naked I came and naked I go. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He came in with nothing, and he was basically saying, I'm going to go out with nothing. And in the in-between time, I'm going to praise the Lord no matter what the circumstances. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2, again, the sons of God, the angels, and Lucifer appear before the Father And he says, it looks like your plan didn't work, Lucifer, with Job. He didn't curse me. He blessed me. And he says, well, that's because he's still healthy. Take away his health. Skin for skin, a man will give anything for his health. So take that away from him. Now we'll see what happens. And he says, you can do that, but um, you can't take his life. I'll let you go that far or no farther. Here we see the sovereignty of God and all that. So Job is struck from head to toe with boils. He's a pathetic sight. His friends come. Nobody says a word for a week because he looks so bad. Sitting there scraping his boils off of him. And his wife has had it at this time. She says, are you going to keep your integrity through all this? Curse God and die. But again, Job says, shall we only receive good from the hand of the Lord and not adversity? And then it goes on to say, in all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he charge God falsely, even though he was completely unaware that there was a test going on in the heavenlies that's being watched full time, and he's not aware of that. This is ground level. He doesn't have the, his eyes open to the spiritual realm. All right, that's one and two. Now, 
From chapter 4 to verse 25, we're introduced to three of Job's so-called friends. And uh, at first, you know, they had well intentions to visit Job. I'm sure they did. And I believe they were his friends. But after Job's first statement of why did this happen to me, for the next from chapter 4 to verse 25, we have three different rounds of debate and dialogue going on between Job and a guy named Eliphaz, who's going to be called out in this chapter we're in this morning, Bildad and Zophar. And if we sum this up, as far as they were concerned, Job, you've done something wrong. If you just get it right with God, everything's going to be fine. God doesn't do these things to good people, and therefore, that's why you're suffering. But Job did not bend, and he did not buckle. And um, when you get to chapter 26, there's about seven chapters where Job, knowing that he's not guilty of what they accused him of, makes a mistake, and he begins to declare his own self-righteousness. And uh, he's really building this case. They're wrong, so obviously that makes me right, which is not right. And we're going to get to that. Now, let's just turn back to, there's one other guy. After verse 25, a guy named Bildad, um, there's only six verses, and he's pretty much had it. He says, I give up. We're trying to break Job of his guilt, and he's not breaking. Therefore, we're giving up. You don't hear from these guys again. But there's this younger guy named um, Elihu that uh, after Job um, talks about his righteousness for oh, thir- up to chapter 31, from 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, and 37, there's this young buck, <laughs> call him a young buck, because he's young, and um, he does his best. It's, it's summed up, um, verse chapter 32, um, I should say 31, verse 40, it says, the words of Job are ended. Now, what I want you to see is Job isn't going to speak again until what we just read this morning, chapter 40, when he's speaking to the Lord, And 42, his second time he speaks to the Lord. So when it says the words of Job are ended, they're ended. But this guy, Elihu, this young buck, he lays into him. And this goes on all the way up to chapter 38. And um, this is, I I, I likened it both on Wednesday and Sunday to um, sort of like the, um, well, I used the Mount of Transfiguration before. Let me use a different example. How about Jesus' baptism? And John the Baptist sees the Holy Spirit come down upon the Lord Jesus Christ, signifying that this is the Messiah. But then, in the middle of that dramatic scene, that's interrupted by a voice from heaven. And it says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. God broke right in. So as we get to chapter 38, and... um, Job has no opportunity to respond to Elihu. Why? Well, it's implied that there was a storm horizon and everybody split. They just took off. But instead, God speaks in chapter 38 and 39. And we did this last Sunday, I think it was last Sunday, where we talked about God challenging Job. And basically it summed up with this question, Job, if you think you know so much, Were you there when I laid the foundations of this world? I'll tell you who was there. The angels were there. They rejoiced. And I gave three examples. Job, have you entered into the wonders of a snowflake? And I showed you six pictures of how beautiful a treasure of a snowflake is. Everybody remember and with me? And um, then we talked about the constellations. He holds them together. Uh, The Pleiades, Orion, the Maseroth, the Zodiac. All of that... He says, I, I, I pull those together and I have them for times and seasons. You know about that, Job? And then I just threw in for extra credit DNA, which to me is a slam dunk against any argument versus creation and evolution. It is evidence beyond design, beyond any mathematical probability. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? Remember we, we ended in Romans 1, 
because of creation, every human being is without excuse. And you will stand guilty if you say there is no God. Because Romans 1 says, oh, they know there's a God. And they're suppressing that truth because they simply don't want to be be lorded over by a God. They want to do their own thing. So Romans 1 came into play. So 38 and 39 is such a humbling experience for Job as he's listening to God. Just lay it out. And um, I got caught up into it, and I'm, and I'm once again drawn to the wonder and the overwhelming awesomeness of this creation, this world that we live in, how beautiful it is, how, what it takes for it to function, what it takes for me to articulate thought, for you guys to hear it and understand it and digest it. All that's involved in all that. And it's just so over the top that, of course, um, there is a creator who made the creation. And we appreciate an artist because we see the evidence of the beauty. We want to know who the artist is. Creation demands a creator, bottom line. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? Creation demands a creator. There's just no getting around that. Well, the reason in chapter 40 that the Lord says, stand up like a man, Job, we're going to have a little talk. Been doing an awful lot of talking about how much you know about me and how righteous you are and so on and so forth. I've heard every word of it. Now I'm going to question you. And it's at this point, Job's response in verses 3 through 5, after he sees God, not just talking about God, now he's seen the Lord, he says, and I, verse 4, I'm simply vile. What in the world could I ever answer you? I'm going to put my hand over my mouth. I've spoken once, but I'm not going to do it again. Twice, and I'm going to proceed no farther. And then for some odd reason, the Lord gets sidetracked on dinosaurs and dragons. And um, I believe what we have here is a brontosaurus uh, because of the tail. When uh, Russ Miller was with us, he went into detail showing us pictures of, a, of this creature here. He quoted Job chapter 40, talking about the brontosaurus, and that's important for this reason. You have man and dinosaurs alive at the same time. And then in chapter 41, it's basically talking about Leviathan, this um, dragon that cannot be destroyed, who has the ability to, to breathe fire. And uh, again, Russ went into great detail with that. Well, that brings us to our chapter this morning. And with all that he has now seen, um, he's been declaring his own righteousness. Matter of fact, um, I'll turn to it. You don't have to. I'm going to turn back to chapter 34, verse 5. And this is Elihu. He says, Job, you're saying that you're righteous. That's what this is all about. And the point of the book of Job, and I'll quote McGee on this point, uh, in the first, in our text, verses 1 through 6 again, where he says, I repent in dust and ashes. McGee says, Job recognizes the sovereignty of God. He confesses his sin and he repents. God has accomplished his purpose in the life of Job. Job evidently realizes that the reason God had permitted him to suffer is to bring him to this point of repentance. And now he sees himself in the light of the presence of God. How is that? Vile. (laughs) Anything but righteous. And that's how he now sees himself rather than what he has been seeing himself as. This morning I want to talk about repentance. Don't hear too much about it in the churches these days. But not only about repentance, but the absolute necessity of repentance. So this is called Job's repentance, but we're going to have a study in God's word this morning of what the Bible teaches us about repentance. What is it? Why is it so necessary? That's why we have as many cross-references. It does, it's not as scary as you'll be out of here before lunch, don't worry. And, uh, uh, but they're short, 
teachings from John the Baptist to Jesus to the Apostle Paul to Peter to Cornelius of the Word of God teaching us what it says about repentance. So let's begin with the greatest man who ever lived, whose name was John the Baptist, and that would be in Matthew chapter 3. John was a holy man. Jesus said, among all those who were born among women, there's never lived a greater than John the Baptist. Now, I don't know quite how to take that, but I believe it means a holy life. He lived in the wilderness. He dressed in camel hair. That's not a camel hair suit, just plain old camel. (laughs) And ate locusts and wild honey. And Jesus said, he's the greatest man who ever lived. He had the vow of a Nazarite on his life. Couldn't cut his hair, couldn't eat grapes, couldn't drink wine. That was part of the, the vow of a Nazarene. And yet, he was offended at the end and even doubted that Jesus was the one because of Jesus' lifestyle that offended John. And so we pick this up, but as we see his ministry in chapter 3, of John, We just have the first five verses. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Let me just say at this point, God has not spoken prophetically through a man for 400 years. Let that sink in. Uh, yeah, we were celebrating the 4th of July this weekend. Somebody help me out. How many years has it been? 200 and, 238. 238. You and your husband and wife need to get together and get on the same page on this one. <laughs> one said 34, one said 38. Good discussion on the way home, guys. <laughs> so, double that. Go ahead and double it. And that's the time between the book of Malachi to Matthew chapter 3. And now we got this long-haired guy dressed out like a prophet, and he has authority. Such authority that everybody's coming and saying, are you the Messiah? No. Well, are you uh, Elijah? How about Jeremiah? No, no. Well, who are you then? I'm just a voice. Voice calling in the wilderness, verse 3. Make straight the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. That's all I am. And John himself was clothed in camel hair and with a leather belt around his waist and His food was locusts and wild honey. And all Jerusalem and Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to hear him. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, in order to confess your sins, there needs to be the call for repentance. And so when the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to the baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, I love John. (laughs) Who has warned you, notice it says, to flee from the wrath that is to come? How did you guys know that wrath was coming? How did you hear that judgment is going to come? And then he tells them to bring forth fruits that are worthy of, notice the word, repentance. Why did he say it to them? Well, they needed to be told straight out. Others were convicted But he says, unless you repent, you need to bring forth the fruits that show you really are saved. The first words of John the Baptist, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and he said, what was his first word? Repent. The very first words of the greatest man who ever lived was repent. Let's go to chapter 13 of the book of, of Luke. Jesus talking about repentance. Luke chapter 13. Verse 1, there were present at that season some who told him about Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifice. So there was a word out, Pilate had killed some guys. They were having a sacrifice and he mixed their blood in with it. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you guys suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners 
than other Galileans because they suffered such things? Now, here's, here's basically the book of Job. Do you think that Job is suffering because he did something wrong, because he was a sinner? What does Jesus say? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you're going to perish. And then he repeats it with another story. Or what about those 18 guys on whom the power tower of Siloam fell and it killed them? Do you think they were worse sinners than other men? I mean, this was Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar's accusation against Job. Job, you did something wrong. That's why this happened. And the Lord here is clearly saying, I tell you, no. But, on the other hand, unless you all repent, you will perish. Well, popular books out today by Rob Bell and other emergent church leaders, Velvet Elvis and Love Wins, says don't worry about judgment, don't worry about God. God's a loving God. I mean, what kind of loving God would ever send anybody to hell? I'll tell you one, one who is perfectly just in his judgments and demands righteous judgments that have broken his righteous law. It's not his desire. He's willing that none should perish. So anyone give me an amen on that? He's willing that none would perish, but that all would come to the knowledge of the truth, which is what? God sent his son into this world because he loves you guys so much that he gave his only begotten son. Justice had to be done. Somebody had to pay it. And the only one worthy to pay it was Jesus. That's why he came. Justice was served. And as soon as you believe on him, then you're justified. And that word means just as though you've never sinned. And that's the only way it can happen. But unless it's through Christ and you come directly to him, then you fell in the category here. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? A straightforward gospel. And then the necessity of absolutely Jesus teaching, yeah, not only must you repent, but there really is eternal judgment and eternal damnation. Well, we've heard from John and the Lord Jesus. Let's go over to Acts chapter 2, the first time Peter preaches. It's Pentecost, Acts 2. It says in verse, first verse, Second chapter of Acts. I got a, uh-oh, getting sidetracked, look out. <laughs> got an email from Terry Clark, I'm on his mailing list. And they had the two early covers of uh, the seven, second chapter of Acts with Nellie and Annie and Buck Herring, their brothers and sisters. Some of you old timers remember the second chapter of Acts? They had their first couple of albums on there. So I was going down memory lane. And I thought, second chapter, well, I mean, what a great name for a group, the second chapter of Acts. And the Lord used them greatly, and still is for that matter. But when the day of Pentecost fully came, Acts 2, second chapter of Acts, well, the Holy Spirit was poured out. They began to speak in other languages. And they said, you guys are drunk. And they Peter is one that stood up and says, they're not, it's nine o'clock in the morning, trust me on this one. He says, this is simply that which is being fulfilled from the Old Testament, that God's gonna pour out his spirit. And this is the birth of the church right here in Acts chapter two. 3,000 people are gonna get saved this day, but not before they hear the entire gospel. So Peter, with great boldness, which he didn't have the day before, he was afraid of little girls and denying the Lord, but now he's standing up, he's a man's man, he says, I'll tell you what's going on here. And he walks him through the, the Old Testament fathers, David, and he talks about the purpose, he quotes prophecy, and he quotes um, Psalm 118 and Psalm 16, I forever saw the Lord before me, uh, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. He began to come up with all these Old Testament he wasn't up studying the night before again. He wasn't taking notes. This is divine revelation as the Holy Spirit was laying it on him at that moment in time. He did not know that this was going to happen like this, and nor did he have a speech prepared. 
But as he lays it out, it is so powerful um, that by the time you get to verse 36, and he's winding up his study, when 37, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And this is important here to catch this part. It's not, you know, if you give your life to the Lord, he's going to turn your life around, your health is going to get better, your finances are going to get better, your marriage is going to get better, all the above. It's not what it says. It says, they were cut to the heart. They go, we are guilty of this. And Peter, to the rest of the apostles, this was their question. Men and brethren, what are we going to do? And Peter says the very first words of Peter after being uh, having that question. What does he say? Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you yourself will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that day there was about 3,000 people who got saved. John the Baptist said, repent. Jesus says, unless you repent, you'll perish. When asked how to get saved on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and says, you need to repent and be baptized. Let's turn to Acts chapter 10. And as you're turning, um, we're just talking about the two sacraments. I don't even like to call them sacraments. I like to call them Acts of obedience because Jesus said so. How does that sound? (laughs) You know, we took communion this morning. Why do we do that? Well, because the Lord told us, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. I I don't want you to forget. Take communion and remember what it's all about. Baptism. Well, I, I, people ask me about baptism. I said, I was baptized a long time ago. And they said, no, no, no. Dwight, the Bible says after you're converted, then you need to be baptized. I said, I'm going to do that. I'm a grown man. That's, that's foolish. He says, well, then you're out of obedience from the scriptures. And I said, really? And they said, yeah. And I says, everywhere here is always believe first and then be baptized. So if you haven't been baptized, you need to be baptized. Why? Because the Bible says so. That's simple. It's active obedience. So in Acts chapter 10, Peter, I got into this story because Peter's in Joppa. And in talking with our group, we're going to go a day early so we can go to Joppa, which is right next to Caesarea. And it's in walk, good walking distance, but you need a little time. It's beautiful um, town on the, on the Mediterranean Sea. The setting for Acts chapter 10 just um, is, it tells us in verse 1 about the first Gentile who saved whose name is Cornelius and he's living in Caesarea. And all of a sudden, he's a good guy who fears God. He's generous with his money. And about the ninth hour of the day, he has this vision and uh, an angel of God coming to him and says, Cornelius. And he says, what is it, Lord? He says, well, what I want you to do, God's heard your prayer, and I want you to send to Joppa. Now, you can see Joppa from Caesarea. It sort of juts out. Joppa sort of juts out into the Mediterranean. And he says, I want you to go there, and I want you to call for a guy named Simon Peter. He's in a tanner's house. And he'll, he'll tell you what you must do. Now think this through. He needs to be saved. You have an angel of God standing right in front of you. My question is, if you've got an angel in God, I think he has the facts and the information down to present the gospel. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? Amen. I think he would. Except the Bible says that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching. What this foolish preacher is doing this morning that's what God has chosen. He said, I want you to go send for Simon Peter. He's just a fisherman from the Galilee. He's an average Joe. And I want you to send for him. So they do, and he's going to tell you what you must do. And he'll explain all things to them. So he sends them off to Joppa. Gets a couple of his right-hand guys. They go down the road to Joppa. In the meantime, the Lord is dealing with Peter. Because this is the first Gentile who's going to be saved, and salvation is of the Jews and not for the Gentiles. So how to get through to Simon Peter? He's hungry. 
He has a vision of this picnic blanket coming down from heaven and all these unclean food on it that no Jewish boy would ever eat. I mean, there were bratwursts on there. There were ham sandwiches on there. There was um, a shrimp and lobster on there. I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. And remember, he's hungry. And Peter says, not so, Lord. I know the rules. Everything on that list is unclean. And I'd never touch it. it. Happened three times. And Lord says, Pete, listen up. He says, if I've cleansed it, it's clean. And then he got a knock at the door. He says, there's some guys downstairs. I want you to go with them. And I don't want you to doubt anything. Just go. Who are you guys? Well, we're, you know, we're just servants to our, our uh, Cornelius. He's a centurion. He's a Gentile? Yep, he's a Gentile, and he wants you to come over and explain things to him. Bam, the lights go on. Okay, I get it, Lord. And he goes over there. In the meantime, Cornelius, knowing he's had this divine revelation from heaven, there's a guy coming to his house who's going to explain the way to salvation. Well, he calls Uncle Henry, Uncle Aunt Sue, and Uncle uh, John, <laughs> everybody he can think of, and that house is packed by the time Peter shows up. So Peter lays it out as this crowd has gathered in Acts chapter 10. And then as he's laying it out, Cornelius says in verse 34 days ago, I was fasting until this hour, and I had this vision, and it said, I want you to go to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter. And um, tell him to come. He will speak to you. So I did it immediately. Now, therefore, here we are. All things that God has commanded, we want to hear. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, I truly perceive that God shows no partiality. He's no respecter of people. Everybody's the same as far as God is concerned. And he lays it out. And he explains to them the resurrection he says, Cornelius, I want to tell you a story. I would love to have heard this full Bible study. He says, I walked and talked with Jesus every day for three years. I was there the night he died. I don't know if he told him about the betrayal part. But it talks about the resurrection and that he was risen from the dead in verse 41. He arose from the dead and he commanded us to preach in the temple and testify that he is risen and was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him is going to receive the forgiveness of their sins. Now, again, the Lord interrupts in the middle of a Bible study. This is great. Well, Peter was still speaking. This is the second time this has happened to Peter. Once was on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Holy Spirit falls upon them. And you go, wait a second. The Holy Spirit can't fall unless the people are saved. Well, as soon as they heard that Jesus came to forgive sins, I think everybody in that Bible study says, I want that. That's what I think happened. And as soon as they said in their heart, I want that, I believe that, that's when the Holy Spirit came down. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Jews that were there, they were blown away. They were astonished. Because the Holy Spirit was given to Gentiles. Can you imagine such a thing? A Gentile getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. And they were given the gift of tongues and they magnify God. And notice, Peter says, can anybody forgive, give, uh, not allow baptism? That they should be received, that they've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them that be, they be baptized in the name of the Lord and they asked Peter to stay for a couple more days. Let's go back, and if we think this doesn't apply to us who are already saved, let's go to the book of Revelation and talk about repentance being an ongoing process that needs to be done on a daily basis. I had communion this morning. The Bible says before you take communion, you need to search your heart. Check it out. It's a time that you, the Bible says, if you would examine yourself, and repent, then you won't need to be judged. So every time we have communion, we're actually 
in that place of self-examination and saying, Lord, here I am. Point it out. What is it? We'll deal with it. And so we read here in Revelation 2, here's the church that had it all going for it. This was John's church. I mean, they had, verse 2, they had works and labor, patience. They couldn't bear those who were evil. Uh, they had tested those who said they're apostles that are not, found them to be liars. They were hanging in there. They had perseverance and patience. They have labored for the Lord and they haven't become weary in doing well. I mean, that's a pretty good test of a church. Doing great. Then we have this nevertheless. Whoa, nevertheless. Nevertheless, I have this against you because you've left your first love. You got all the mechanisms going and you're doing all the work, but you're not spending time like with me like you used to. I used to sing songs to me and just go for a walk with me and it was just me and you. You've let that go. You got the machine going. You get, you get a machine going, it'll go. It'll go pretty much by itself. There's a lot of churches and machines are going and the Lord left a long time ago, if the truth be known. So here, he has this, nevertheless, I have this against you because you've left your first love. He says, I want you to remember where you have fallen. And what does he say to do? Repent. What's your point, Dwight? Repentance isn't something to do when you ask Jesus to come into your life. Repentance, according to 1 John 1, 9, it says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. And that's on an ongoing daily basis. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? We've got a word for that, by the way. It's called sanctification. It's the ongoing purifying process because we fall into sin. We fall short on a daily basis. But the good news is if you confess it and make it right with the Lord, then he'll forgive it. And this is what he's telling him to do. Remember, therefore, and repent. Or else I'm going to come and remove your candlestick from its place unless you repent. I like that. He's saying, if, if there's not love in your life for your brother, for your sister, and you're doing it for other motives, Paul said, it's the love of Christ that constrains me to do what I do. I, I hope you're doing the, <laughs> what you're doing for the Lord simply because you love the Lord. I've got to have an amen on that one. We do what we do simply because we love the Lord, not because of a paycheck, not because of any other reason. I love Jesus for what he's done for me. And what I really like about this is verse 6. He doesn't leave the sting. When you get rebuked, nobody likes it. Hebrews 12 says, who likes to get corrected? Nobody. It hurts. But he says, what father doesn't correct their son? So it's part of the process. But he doesn't leave it there. He goes back to patting him on the shoulder. Verse 6, I have this against you. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. I hate it too. Well, that made him feel a little bit better. What's that, Dwight? Nicolaitans. Two Latin words, Nico and laity, having authority over people. He says, I called you to be a servant. I didn't call you to lord over anybody. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then you've got to learn to be servant of all. And I speak to myself and pastors in particular when I make this statement or those in leadership or over organizations. And um, he says, I don't like that. He says, you have one Lord and that would be Jesus. Need an amen on that one too. One Lord and it doesn't mean we don't have pastors and elders. We need them. They have their purpose, but um, no lording it over. Let's go back to... um, this whole idea for the church that is, um, this confession is necessary. If we say that we have no sin again in First John, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. And again, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And um, if we say that we have not sinned, then we make God a liar and his word is not with us. Again, let me quote McGee from Chapter 42 here. Um, Here are the uh, the steps of real repentance. This is the repentance 
that is of faith. First, like Job, you must see yourself really as vile. Who likes to see themselves as vile? Second, you must abhor yourself like Job. And he uses this analogy. Perhaps you've seen a bird feeding on carrion in the wilderness. Quite a few dead deer on the highway these days, I'm noticing. (laughs) And the birds are out. And when you quit trusting yourself and quit trying to live on the old dead carcass of self and you turn to the living God, then that's real repentance. What a wonderful thing. I'm just going to give two or three examples of people in the New Testament now who didn't think they needed repentance, that didn't think they needed to do it. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19. We're all familiar with the story. The rich young ruler. This guy, was, this guy grew up in church. Verse 16. He thought he was good. Verse 16. Now behold, one came and said to Jesus, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do so that I can have eternal life? What good work can I do so I can go to heaven? And he says, Why do you call me good? Nobody's good, but one, that's God. And he goes on to say, but, and I love this because the Lord is calling him out. But if you want to enter into life, go ahead, just keep the commandments. And he said, well, which one you got in mind? He says, well, you shall not murder. I haven't done that. Uh, You shall not commit adultery. Well, I haven't done that one. Shall not steal. He said, no, I didn't do that either. Can't bear false witness against people. I haven't done that one. Honor your father and your mother. You shall love your father and your mother as yourself. And the young man said to him, done them all. All of these things I have kept from my youth. You know what I say to that? Liar, liar, pants on fire. <laughs> he broke all of them. Every single one of them. And so the Lord knows he's broken every one of them. So how do you get this guy's attention? by going for what his God really is. And the young man said, well, I've done all these things for my youth. What else do I lack? He says, well, if you want to be perfect, and he thought he was, well, then go sell what you have and just give it to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. Just leave it all behind and follow me. But when the young man heard this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he was very wealthy. He had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for implying that you can get a camel through the eye of a needle. You can do that, by the way. What you need is a very large meat grinder and a really big needle opening. And it can be done. Now, let me tell you what it means. And when you visit Israel, the tour guides point out. They say, you see that arch? That's the eye of a needle. And when the merchants would come through on their camels, and they were really packed, it was hard for them to get through the eye of the needle. Foreign to us, but not, not to anybody during this period of time. But it was, seemed impossible to the disciples because they said, well, if that's the case, who can be saved? And Jesus says, well, you know what? With man, it's impossible because man cannot keep the Ten Commandments. He says, but with God, all things are possible. And he didn't tell them yet, nor did Jesus die on the cross yet. But with God, he made a way, a very, very narrow way. And there's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. So we have the rich young ruler Let's flip over to Luke chapter 18. We're winding her up here. Luke 18. I suppose if there's one thing Jesus couldn't handle, it was a self-righteous hypocrisy of the Pharisees. They, if they saw a Gentile walking down the street and they had their big robes on, they actually would tuck them in. Because if by chance they would brush against a Gentile, that means they'd have to go down to the bathing pools and 
and bathed because now they're defiled. They touched the Gentile. So in Luke 18, picking it up in verse 9, we have Jesus telling the story of, of the Pharisee and the tax collector. <clears throat> he spoke this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's Job, until he meets God, and despises other people. It says, well, there's two men who went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. The other one was a tax collector. They were hated. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, Oh, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, those extortioners or unjust adulterers or even this here tax collector. We know he's taken it on the side. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. That's one prayer. The tax collector, however, was standing a bit off to the side. He didn't even dare raise his eyes up into heaven. He began to beat his breast, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be abased, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's our study on the importance of repentance. But there was one other guy, before we go back, that sort of sums up this whole idea of not really repenting. There was one more, Acts chapter 8. As a guy who never made it, at least I don't know, he might have. His name is Simon the Sorcerer. Picking it up in verse 9. The background is, Philip here was just a deacon waiting on tables, and the Lord called him to be an evangelist. And he went to the Samaritan city, and all these people are getting saved and healed, and demons are being cast out. They had a town sorcerer that everybody looked up to. His name is Simon, verse 9. And uh, he practiced sorcery. And everybody was intimidated by Simon, saying that he had this great man and great power of God. And they heeded him. And for a long time, the, verse 11, he had sorcery over them. But, verse 12, when Philip came preaching the things concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ, men and women believed and were baptized. And then Simon also believed, or so it says, and he was baptized. And he continued with Philip. He was amazing the miracles and the signs and the wonders which were done. Now, they were baptized, but they weren't yet baptized in the Holy Spirit. So, for some reason, Philip calls for James, uh, P, uh, John and Peter to come up from Jerusalem. Verse 15, when they came up, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet the Holy Spirit had not fallen on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord. They laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw this, he goes, holy smokes. He said, well, i like to be able to do that. And he goes up to Peter, and he offers Peter some money. He says, well, you, here's some money. Will you teach me how to do that? And Peter rebuked him straight out in verse 21. He says, you have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. You see, I don't. I don't believe Simon really got saved. I believe Simon was like the crowd in John chapter 6 when Jesus fed the 5,000. And they walked with him all the way over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And when Jesus explained to him what it took to become a disciple and follow after him, it says, they all left him. They followed him no more. And I think that's what happened here. I think Simon got caught up in the motion of the moment. Everybody's getting saved. Well, I'm going to get saved too. And uh, this particular trick you're doing over here with the laying on of hands, I want to learn how to do that. Here's 20 bucks. Show me how it's done. Peter rebuked him. And he says, what? Verse 22, repent. Therefore, of your wickedness, and pray that God, that the thoughts of your heart, what was in his heart? 
Well, he was big man on campus before. He wants to be big man on campus again. That was the thought of his heart. And um, I see that you're poisoned by bitterness and you're bound up in iniquity. And he says, oh, I don't want any of that to happen. Pray that that doesn't happen to me. Repentance is necessary for salvation. Repentance is necessary um, in the church today on an ongoing basis, according to Revelation 2. And we see that there are those um, like Simon Peter, the rich young ruler, um, and Simon the sorcerer, who never, never really repent at all, and they leave sad and sorry. So, let's go back now to um, see the results of what happens when you do repent. Let's go back and we'll finish the book of Job this morning. How long have we been in here anyway? Quite a while. I'm going to sort of miss it in some ways. And while you're turning, let's remember where we are as we finish up the book. Job thought he was righteous. And now as he stands before God and he meets God, he realizes he not, he's not righteous. Job has a new concept of God. He's not in a position to question God in anything that he does. He's to trust him. He has this new relationship. Finally, Job sees himself as he really is. Vile, and he hates himself. He abhors himself. And he sees himself in this new relationship with God, and all he wants to do is repent and dust and ashes. We'd say Paul's probably the greatest writer in the New Testament, but Paul said, this is a worthy saying that Jesus came to save sinners, and I'm the worst in the group. Paul said that. And I think some of us are here saying, I'll take that one on, Paul. I think I'm the worst in the group. And he might say, you are, or I am. Paul would write to the Romans, I know that in me and my flesh dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me. I want to do the right thing, but how to perform what is good, I don't find. And we have to, when we stand before God in his presence, just realize that we are just that, vile in, in, in front of his holiness. John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, Slave trader, everybody here has heard of him, right? On his gravestone, this is what he wrote. He said, I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Isn't that a great epitaph put on a tombstone? Just put one on my dad's just last weekend. And dad requested this be put on his gravestone. A sinner saved by grace. And then First John um, 1, 5.13, which was his life verse. What's the result when a person really repents? Well, let's pick it up in verse 7 as we close out the book of Job. He's repented. Now the Lord changes from Job to Eliphaz the Timonite. Verse 7. And so it was after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Timonite, says, my wrath is aroused against you and your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take for yourself seven bulls, seven rams. Go to my servant Job. Offer up for yourself a burnt offering. For my servant Job is going to pray for you guys, and I'm going to accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of what is right, as my servant Job has. Driving home from the office yesterday, it hit me. This was not a part of my notes until I was driving home after visiting Larry yesterday. And I said out loud, of course. And the gospel's in every book somewhere, but I didn't see it until I remembered this verse. The wrath of God is on these three men. And unless there's intercession made and a sacrifice made, he's going to deal with them according to their own folly. Isn't that what Jesus has done for us? Has not he interceded for us, become the sacrifice, lest God deal with us according to our folly? And I go, oh my goodness, there it is. There's a gospel in Job. Never saw it before. And if you don't see it, that's fine. But I, 
It ministered to me at that time. So we find here, verse 9, Eliphaz, the Timnite, and Bildad, the Shuhite, Zophar, the Namathite. They went and did as the Lord commanded them, for the Lord had accepted Job. Now let's just stop there. Um, Instead of fighting against his friends or debating him, he's now going to pray for them. He's going to offer a sacrifice for them. We're not to argue today or fight amongst ourselves about religion. I need to clarify that. I'm not saying that it's absolutely necessary to expose false teaching and false doctrine and false religions. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? But to argue for the sake of I know more than you do about this or that um, is one of the lessons of the book of Job. What is this that we do is Paul says, brethren, if anybody is overtaken in a fault, let's say a brother stumbles. It says, if you're spiritual, this should be your attitude. I want you to restore such a one in a spirit of meekness. Wow. And, and then it goes on and say, considering yourself, because that could happen to you too. I want you to go up to that brother. I want you to love on him. And I want you to have him restored in a spirit of humility And the way you can have that spirit of humility is imagine that you're no different, you have feet of clay, and what happened to him can happen to you. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? And so with your friends, maybe that have taken a fall, you don't say, he sure had that coming. That's what Job's friends did. No, the Bible teaches us in Galatians. You seek him out, you love on him, put your arm around him, and you restore that person in a spirit of humility and meekness. That's what the Lord has done to each and every one of us. Job has a new relationship with himself. He doesn't have it in for his friends. He's praying for him. And God and his friends, and God does something new for Job. James says, confess your faults one to another. Pray for one another that you might be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Last verses of Job. All that we've been going through, all these trials, And at the end of it all, everything is restored to Job. Let's finish the book, verse 10. The Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And all of his brothers and sisters and all of his acquaintances came before him. They ate food with him in his house. They consoled him and comforted him. For all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him, each one gave him a piece of silver and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, for he had 4,000 sheep, 6,000 camel, 1,000 yak of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. Hey, Dwight, That's not double. That's exactly the number that died the first time. And again, in in, um, uh, reading McGee this week, and he says, no, he doubled them. Remember what happened to David's son when he died, the baby of Bathsheba? Prayed for him. He says, well, I can go to him, but he can't return to me. All of seven sons of Job, they're all in heaven, so it was three daughters. And so seven and seven is 14 and six daughters. They're doubled too because they're very, still very, very much alive. So that's doubled too. And he named one of the girls Jemima. Her first name was um, Anjemima, and she makes pancakes. She became very, very famous throughout the world. Just checking to see if you're still with me. And the two other ones that were there. What was special about them? It says, no women were as beautiful as the daughters of Job. And their father gave him an inheritance. Now this, verse 16. Job lived 140 years and saw his children and grandchildren for his generation. So Job died old and full of old age. We know that this is during the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's got to be about 175 at this time. Abraham was that old. That's why we date the book the way we date the book. 
We're told, I believe in closing, Job teaches us that through the storms and trials of life, God's revealing to us just how unrighteous and vile the human heart really is. And nothing short of real repentance will save us. As Jesus said, and this is what I close, unless you repent, you will perish. I'm going to leave it with that. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the book of Job. Thank you as we see you revealing yourself in the end and restoring to Job. Lord, I pray for the one this morning that's in the middle of a trial. Maybe their friends are beating up on them. I don't know. But Lord, help us not compare ourselves to one another and develop self-righteousness, but help us compare ourselves to this book in front of us in your holy presence. And we'll get humble really quick. So Lord, we are humbly grateful this morning for the cross, for a relationship with you. Lord, forgive us if we've left our first love and gravitated towards something more important than you. We ask for forgiveness. Lord, give us the ability to say, We're sorry when we're wrong and give us the grace to accept your healing and restoration in the same way that you restored Job. And ever mindful, Lord, that he who has begun a good work in you, that you're able to complete it until that day. In Jesus' name, amen.